This is Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine. If you're just joining us, please go back and start at episode one. I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. This memoir is my experience of becoming a first-time mother and navigating the healthcare system for my son who was diagnosed with a rare condition. Yearning for answers. The last few weeks had felt like we were flying blind, groping our way through the darkness on the medical front. We had a diagnosis, but no cure. As I had learned, there are two different types of hyperinsulinemia, transient and permanent. Transient goes away quickly and unexpectedly, as if by magic. Permanent you can grow out of as an infant, or it can last until adolescence. Quite a long range of possibility there, but the good news was that it is a childhood disease. The pancreas rids itself of problematic cells and begins to regulate itself properly sometime before adolescence. Of the permanent variety, there are two diagnosed types, focal and diffuse. Focal is where the problematic cells, the ones producing too much insulin and thus forcing the blood sugar level down, are localized in one section of the pancreas. In diffuse, the problematic cells are located all across the pancreas. The difference here is that focal is operable and diffuse is much harder to operate on. With focal cases, there's a general recommendation among the American medical community to operate and remove a localized section of problematic cells. Diffuse is still operable, but often surgery ends up removing up to 98% of the pancreas and ensuring diabetes for the rest of the patient's life. A lot of blah, blah, blah with categories that don't really explain much, solutions that don't solve much. Very little was clear cut, many shades of gray. We had some big decisions to make, and if we didn't make them, they would be made for us. Once your genetics came back, you were diagnosed with permanent hyperinsulinemia. We waited weeks to determine whether you had the focal or diffuse form. The scan that would determine that was not available at your current hospital. And so we were scheduled for the scan at a nearby hospital, the only one in Israel that performed the scan. Weeks of anticipation led up to the day of the scheduled scan, called an F-DOPA scan. I had been wallowing in a pool of my own despair, searching for meaning, yearning for answers. This scan gave me hope. I hadn't felt hope since you were diagnosed. Hope for answers, hope for direction. Our decisions at this specific junction would matter. If you had focal, we could go ahead with a planned surgery. If diffuse, we would have to determine what to do next, whether to go ahead with a surgery, a full pancreatectomy, or to try and manage your condition medically at home. This scan, this information, would help us make decisions, plan your future, our future, as a family. The day of the scan, we woke up early. An ambulance was scheduled to transfer us to the other hospital with a resident accompanying us. And then you would be returned home to your little giraffe in the NICU in a matter of hours. You had been put in a glucose drip as foods were forbidden 24 hours prior to the scan. 
and they left another IV in your little arm for the injection fluid for the scan. The injection fluid was dangerous and radioactive, but the only way to perform the scan. I was a ball of nerves that day. It was our absolute first time leaving the hospital grounds with you, albeit to go to another hospital. But when you're in a constant state of crisis, all unknowns are terribly stressful. A marathon in a state of emergency dulls you to outside forces, but the stress manages to linger, seep into your subconscious, and traumatize your soul. So at three and a half months, you rode in your first ambulance. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be your last. As we pulled into the new hospital, I noticed how familiar it looked. Same, unfortunate, boring, depressing colors. White with a trim of some boring neutral color that made me want to puke. I know that to be a doctor and nurse, you must be very passionate about your calling. But something about the institution of a hospital manages to suck the lifeblood out of anyone inside it. No furniture, empty halls. God forbid someone should have a place to sleep or sit comfortably in the waiting room while watching over her loved ones. We rolled you to the radiology department where they performed the scans. As they led us down the hall, I noticed another couple with a four-year-old boy sitting on plastic chairs in the waiting room. I saw them checking his blood sugar level from his big toe, and I wondered if they were here to perform the same scan. They were. What surprised me about this boy was how normal he looked. He wasn't hooked up to anything, no machines, no beepers, no ventilation. Just a normal little boy running around the waiting room full of energy, loath to sit on a chair, jumping around with a wild imagination, miming a fake sword to slay a dragon, rescuing a princess from her castle. I wondered, would you be that boy in a few years? Was there hope to be had? The mother and father of the four-year-old introduced themselves to us. They too had been in the NICU for what felt like a lifetime. They too had raised a boy with hyperinsulinemia through intensive treatment, monitoring, and care. I remember one thing specifically that the father said, that they had the privilege of seeing their son get better. Would we too have that privilege? When your life is so totally overwhelming that you can only take it day by day, hour by hour, even minute by minute sometimes, it is hard to try to envision the future. It is even harder to try to envision a positive future. But for a brief moment, his words cut through the fog in my heart, and I allowed myself to hope again, to dream, and to imagine a better future. I paced the halls as they took you in for your scan. Not only did you have radioactive materials literally coursing through your veins, but they also needed to briefly put you under anesthesia so the scan could be performed. I was absolutely terrified. But they allowed us to watch through the window as the huge GE machine slid you through a circular tube, scanning, imaging. There are four or five screens behind the glass, and all of a sudden, neon red 
blue, green, and black dance across the screen. I wasn't an expert, but even if I had been, I don't think I could have made anything out of the scan being pieced together from the pixels on the screen. As the picture began to form, hope began to bubble again. Were these the answers we were looking for? We asked the specialist performing the scan her opinion of the results as they lit up the screen. She said that she couldn't tell offhand, and the scan had to be sent to specialists for conclusive results. It would take three weeks. My heart sank. Another three weeks? We waited weeks to schedule the scan, and now more waiting? I could spend my whole life waiting, waiting for answers, waiting for a better tomorrow. At least now, I had a sliver of hope to hold on to as we waited another eternity. Three weeks came and went with the beeping of the monitors in the NICU. Nothing seemed to change. Hyperinsulinemia, our diagnosis, waiting, our treatment, hoping, our solace. Until one day, a phone call came from the other hospital. Our results were in. The official transcript and images would be sent via mail to our current hospital. The results? Inconclusive. As the attending spoke the words inconclusive, a lump formed in the back of my throat. My chest tightened. My eyes tried to fight back the tears. Why had I let myself hope? Why had I held on to the promise of more information, more knowledge, more anything to help us make an educated decision? I felt a huge wave of disappointment. We would have to make all of our decisions, all of our plans for a better future with the current information we had. And that felt like very little. Big, life-changing decisions made on little slivers of information. All the hope I had allowed myself dissipated in that moment, and I was left with nothing. Nothing. Nothing but fear and emptiness. Decisions and data. Just another typical day in the NICU, but today, the rotation changed. The head doctor switched and Pompous was now in charge of the whole NICU. We were doing okay up until today. We managed to get into a fairly regular schedule. They even let us take you out of the NICU for walks. And for that, we were the envy of all the parents in the NICU. So between our daily schedule of injections every four hours, pumping every three hours, inhalations at 10 and two, and physical therapy in the early afternoons, I managed to take you outside for a few breaths of fresh air and sunshine. All other medical tests, the echocardiograms, ultrasounds, and other major checks were completely random and at the discretion of the specialists. Major surgeries were scheduled a few days in advance. You had three major surgeries scheduled while we were there, and a fourth international surgery was scheduled for us in Germany with another scan prior to the surgery. First, they wanted to put in a central line so that it would be easier to take blood and do transfusions. But when they took you down to surgery, you turned white, your vitals became unstable, and they canceled the surgery and rolled you right back up. 
When your heart defect didn't close on its own, they scheduled a specialist from Tel Aviv to come close it. This time, they cleared out the room and sterilized your spot in the NICU. They said that this heart surgery could be performed at your bedside rather than in the operating room. So Abba and I waited outside, Abba with his prayer book reading Psalms. I tried to pray, I did. But I needed a better distraction. So I helped the cleaning lady fold and sterilize equipment. It kept my hands busy and my mind occupied. Nothing better to clean the mind than menial labor. The third was a gastrostomy, where they replaced the feeding tube through your nose with a peg tube. And your final surgery, a pancreatectomy, was scheduled with a specialist in Germany in three weeks. Ironic, isn't it? How your ancestors went to Germany to die and we were going there to save your life? As we prepared for your last surgery, we consulted with international specialists and debated the advantages and disadvantages. There's a split in the medical community on how to treat hyperinsulinemia. Israelis tend to recommend intensive, aggressive medical management until the childhood disease passes. Americans recommend surgery, specifically pancreatectomies, that is removing part or most of the pancreas as early as possible. Pancreatectomies generally cure hyperinsulinemia, but new studies show that they almost guarantee diabetes later once the child reaches puberty. So putting aside the actual financial considerations, there is a cost-benefit ratio to both methods. And since your initial scan was inconclusive, we didn't have any additional information to inform our decision. We set a date for your surgery, but hoped that it wouldn't have to come to that. However, as the days passed and the surgery and logistics needed to be set, we came down to the final count, needing to make a decision. Having been in the NICU for four months, I quickly realized that all collective medical knowledge about each patient is lost and rebuilt with the rotation of the head doctors. Rather than reading each patient's medical history, babies are treated with a set of fresh eyes. The slate is wiped clean and treatment begins anew. This is both a great opportunity to refresh and think creatively about each patient, and at the same time, a terrible opportunity to lose valuable knowledge and data. NICUs are generally very good at treating early and sick babies aggressively and nursing them back to health in a matter of days or weeks. But we had been in this NICU for months now, and you were one of very few babies who seemed to be a permanent fixture. After expressing my frustration at the loss of your entire medical history during the first rotation change, I mobilized and built an Excel spreadsheet of your medical data and history. The staff might lose details of your history, but I would retain it, build upon it, and be able to quickly recognize trends and correlations, and easily communicate it to your caretakers with charts and graphs. In Israel, unlike in the U.S., patients are allowed to access their medical records. So every night, Safta would pore over your medical records, translating them and consulting with her colleagues in the medical community. Other mothers would sit by their babies singing and praying. I would sit by your bed, inputting data into your Excel. I was sick of prayer, of hope. Those were too intangible, too immaterial. I wanted numbers, graphs, logical explanations, and answers. 
If God and your doctors couldn't give me any answers, maybe the data could. Pompous. Today was the lowest of the low. Pompous was in charge now, and even though we had four months of medical history in the NICU, he decided to start over. In addition to your current medications, you had been on a concoction of mother's milk plus nutramigen, a special lactose-sensitive formula for the past few weeks. We had gone through the entire gamut of formulas, and after determining that you were lactose intolerant, from the sheer volume of vomit you produced, we went through Similac, Materna, and Neocate before settling on Nutramagen. After charting your sugars on each formula, it was clear to me that Nutramagen was our best bet solution. But no, Pompous decided to start over. He demanded that you be put on a concentrated milk-based Similac formula. It's a trick that NICU doctors use to pack on calories to preemies, and he thought that it would help keep your sugars up. He gave the order to your resident and nurse, and I saw your nurse start to argue with him. Israelis aren't big believers in hierarchy, so I saw her break rank and begin trying to share your long, long medical history and reaction to formulas in the NICU. This particular nurse had been taking care of you for four months now, and I trusted her to know what was best for you. But Pompous disagreed. She came to me in secret to share his new plan to put you on Similac, and I was immediately frustrated at his incompetence, oversight, and lack of respect for the time we had spent tweaking your food to get it to the optimal mix, even though optimal in this case was far, far from perfect. I pumped every three hours, avoiding dairy, and we spent months with the nutritionist evaluating formula options to minimize your vomiting and maximize your sugars. He ignored all of this without a second thought, with just a look of disdain. When I told the resident that we refused to go backwards, that I refused to subject my son to a futile exercise that was destined to fail, she told Pompous to speak with me. I calmly told him that after months spent investigating your health and well-being, tweaking your food and medications, we could not afford to ignore history. We launched into a tete-a-tete. Me. It is clear from past experience that my son has an intolerance to lactose. We tried all of the formulas, and the dairy-based formulas increased his vomiting significantly, which obviously adversely affects his sugars. Pompous pulled rank looking down his nose at me. You are a new mother, and I am a physician with 20 years of experience with babies. I recommend we take this course of action, and this is how we shall proceed. Me, starting to get frustrated. I understand that you have experience, but I've sat here to oversee my son's treatment for 12 hours a day the past four months. I live by his bedside. I know his treatment, symptoms, and side effects. I know my son and his medical history better than anyone. We have specialists from all over the world consulting on his condition. It would be imprudent to ignore his medical history and intolerance to milk. He's been through enough, and I cannot let you conduct this futile experiment on him. Pompous. You are emotional and cannot see the situation clearly. In my experience, it has helped many of my patients, 
and we will proceed with trying it on your son. Me. You're right. I am emotional because this is my son. But this is a rare case. I will not allow you to throw out four months of medical history just because you started paying attention now. I have charted his sugars on each of these formulas. I pull up the chart on my iPhone. As you can see, his sugars were lowest on Similac compared to all of the other formulas and highest on Nutramagen. I am emotional, but this is data. This is fact. Pompous. You do not have his best interests at heart because you're too emotional. You're interfering with your son's treatment and he will suffer for it. If you continue to interfere with his proper treatment, I will no longer be able to treat your son. My heart broke. I tried to fight back the tears. Not have your best interests at heart? Interfering with treatment? Refuse to treat you? My mind raced. If I continued to engage in this conversation, I knew we would pay for it later. I ran out of the NICU, tears streaming down my face. I had worked so hard, tried so hard to be a good mother, good nurse, good parent, good advocate. And here I was after four months of tireless work and complete dedication to your health. And here he was, pompous, telling me that I was interfering and detrimental to your treatment. I felt defeated. I found a hiding spot next to the service elevator, slumped behind the garbage bin and let my head fall into my open palms and I began to sob. After all of my hard work, trying to be strong, trying to do what was best for my family. I had been treated like garbage and next to the discarded medications and dirty laundry, I had found my rightful spot in the hospital hierarchy. Thank you for listening. This has been Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine. And I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. You can find us on amazon.com or like us on Facebook. This podcast has been produced by Aaron Leader and mastered by Keith Rigling.